This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And we've been spending a lot of time, I have to say, talking to people in Minnesota. There's some sort of trend that we have going on, uh, Carol, over the course of this week. But now, with all respect to the other people (laughs) we've talked to in Minnesota, let's talk to my favorite person uh, in Minnesota. She is the president of the University of Minnesota System, Joan Gable. Uh, Full disclosure, a very good friend of mine. So happy to have her back on the program. Uh, Madam President, how are you? I'm just fine, and I just want to say to all of your listeners, the Twin Cities are the best-kept secret. As soon as we can get back on airplanes, come see us. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I have talked about the fact, and this is one of the reasons I was excited to have you on. I mean, you are smack in the middle of a really important business center. You know, the Fortune 500 companies there that you have are Legion. The cover story, as you probably know, this week in Bloomberg Business Week is about 3M. You have Best Buy. You have a number of others. Let's. We're going to talk about that in a second, but but let's talk about your school for a minute. You guys made the decision, like many did, to go online learning. Tell us about that, about making that decision, and what was entailed. Because this is a massive system you oversee. It's massive. We have sixty-seven thousand students across five campuses, and we also take very seriously the way universities work, how we sit relative to each other. So for us, we do a lot of conversing with other Big Ten schools and try to um, emulate a best practice. And, and then the craziest thing about all of this is, of course, there's no best practice for any of the decisions that we've been making. So, you know, just two weeks ago, we were on retreat with our Board of Regents for our spring meetings in Duluth, Minnesota, which is about two and a half hours north of um, Minneapolis-St. Paul. And that was the moment when we really started to think about level three countries. Remember when that was what we were talking yeah. about? was, oh, we need to get everybody out of the level three countries. And in those two weeks, give or take, since, we've pulled everyone back from everywhere. We've canceled all travel. Every one of our classes that can be online is online. Every class that can't has some sort of alternative assessment. We have um, removed the obligation for grading and gone to an opt-in pass-fail across every course and every level where accreditors would allow it. We've ask students who feel safer away from campus to stay away, but we've allowed students who feel safer on campus, and that's across all the campuses, to stay. We've shifted all of our research labs to COVID-19 research that can shift. And our governor yesterday declared um, what he's calling a stay-at-home Minnesota order, which is like a shelter-in-place without um, uh, – assuming good intent, shelter mm-hmm. in place, and um, we're complying with that. So we have everyone working from home except essential on-site employees, and that was in two weeks. And, you know, universities are um, methodical, thoughtful entities. We don't move fast, generally, and, and most of the time you don't want us to. You want us to be thoughtful right. and explore the issue and look at both sides, and generally we do. We think we do right. it better than... But uh, not lately. <laughs> well, We've been moving really fast lately. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And it's funny, you know, Jason and I or not funny that we've been talking about, you know, with our folks down in Washington, just about the stimulus programs working through. And I understand you've got to be very careful in terms of what you're doing, but you feel like it's just taking longer than necessary. Having said that, the president, you know, President Gable is talking about, 
you know, thinking about reopening the U.S. economy, yet we've got these situations where, you know, there are parts of the country that that know that it really hasn't even hit them yet and expected to. How do you make sense? You've got a plan for this large institution to make sure you're you're ready to reopen when the world reopens again. How do you make sense? Who do you listen to? How do you make sense out of kind of what the strategy is to do going forward? Well, the number of inputs that we had two weeks ago were sort of too many and chaotic. And in just the same short period of time, things have become a lot leaner and clearer, even though there are still lots of areas of uncertainty. So we work very closely with the Department of Health here in Minnesota. Of course, we're a research institution very heavily emphasizing the health sciences. So we have our own subject matter experts on our faculty and in our hospitals. We work with the CDC and we work across all of the other universities and research institutions. And so our governor yesterday um, issued the stay-at-home order that I described a moment ago with the intent of delaying the peak of the curve so that our healthcare providers could ready themselves. So it's a little late to fully flatten the curve. I think we're starting to see that nationwide. Yeah. But it is not too late to delay so that we can build up capacity, which is what we've been focused on, both with the hospital partners, university hospital partners, and across the state. And so that's who we're primarily working with. And then, of course, we follow the law. I mean, if we were ordered to bring students back, we would, but we would rather wait until we watch the epidemiological flow that we've been able to see in other cities. We know it's coming, but we would like it to hit us later so that we can get readier. Right. All right. So, Joan Gable, stick with us. We're going to continue our conversation uh, in just a few minutes. And Carol, uh, she hit on some really interesting points. Yeah, I mean, first totally. of all, having the expertise there is is a big thing. And University of Minnesota, we should point out, has been doing some amazing research around this. But also this notion of, you know, the urban, the rural, all the different constituencies and college campuses are natural places where there's not a lot of social distance, as we well, know. And I love what she said about the information flow becoming much more organized now yeah. versus what it was maybe a couple of weeks ago. All right, we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with President Joan Gable, University of Minnesota, on the phone from Minneapolis. Let's get back to our conversation with Joan Gable. She's the president of the University of Minnesota, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. So, Joan, help us understand uh, what you've learned so far about this remote world with students and faculty and, you know, a place, as we were alluding to, that sort of thrives on social and social collaboration now being virtual. Yeah, so um, I've learned a few things. I would say a few things are affirmed that I already knew or suspected and I'm so incredibly delighted to see uh, bloom, um, that there are good things blooming in the midst of all of this too, which is that uh, people who want to learn, I mean, what we have in, in great numbers on university campuses are curious people who are either trying to learn in order to graduate and start the next chapter of their life, or they're deep dive scholars who have devoted their life to a certain type of expertise. And they are figuring it out. They're more interested in continuing to advance that curiosity than they are in letting what's happening right now ruin it. So we would all prefer to be together. We collaborate better with proximity. We learn better with proximity. This is not ideal, but it's not ruining either. And so we're digging deep and making it all work. 
Well, and what's interesting, Joan, is I think what we're trying to figure out, too, is how much of this, whether it's in academia, whether it's in uh, the business world, how much of what we're doing right now will end up staying with us. You know, we've talked about this a lot when it comes to telehealth and telemedicine that, you know, folks in the medicines industry or medical industry finally think that this might be the thing that gets more people to start using that that type of system. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, how do you see it? It's a little early to say, and of course, this would all be in the world according to me, but I think that there are <laughs> That's okay. some, you know, to take that. That's a great view. world. It's, it's a great world. world. Let's be honest. <laughs> I kind of like it. Uh, the, I do think that our reliance on certain things or our assumption that certain things have to be a certain way, obviously, a lot of that has been taken apart and put back together. There was no possible way we could do pass fail our creditors would never let us and you know here we are and it just opens you up to this idea that there might be different ways to do all kinds of things and i would challenge all of us not just higher education to not just assume that it means we would keep doing what we're doing now i mean i do expect we would have a wider portfolio of online or maybe a larger number of people who would see that you can have a very effective academic experience online or who would communicate Using Zoom, our new best friend, um, to do research teams or meetings or to be more flexible about letting employees work from home. I mean, all of that's probably true. But there are probably all kinds of other things that we're thinking about, you know, what this means in terms of our downtime, what this means in terms of our own fitness and how people are embracing that. And also um, a renewed appreciation for when we can be together because, you know, human society has been through things like this before, before any of our time, but it's not like that stopped us from reconvening. I mean, we want to be together, and I think maybe we'll appreciate each other a little more. That might be a little... Um, my world has a lot of Pollyanna in it, but I like right. that, too. <laughs> yeah, we like it, too. Well, Jode, I, I'm going to ask you the parochial question, I'm guessing, uh, or the personal uh, question that I'm guessing you anticipated, which is Carol and I both have high school juniors. You have a high school senior, I know. Uh, what does this mm-hmm. do for them in terms of the process of going to college, getting into college, and selecting a college? Yes. So I think the first thing we should remember is that this is probably more stressful for them than we realize. So this group of kids was born. My son is a senior. Was I was um, he was about to uh, arrive as 9/11 happened, Mm. and he's coming of age in this. And they had the recession in between. So that's this generation. And we think about you know they're young and they're perfect and they're great looking and they're fit and they have the world ahead of them does not mean that they're not feeling a lot of um, the pressure and uncertainty. So I think the first thing is we need to give them a lot of grace um, and and understanding if this uh, is hitting them harder, it might be hard for some of us to appreciate how hard it's hitting them. So I would start with that. But but, um, I think they've been um, very good at uh, even if as surly teenagers, it did not appear so, mm. at doing what we've expected of them, of being really good athletes and really amazing musicians and doing a lot of service and working hard because there was this thing they were pursuing that looked a very certain way. And here they are now with um, taking their classes in ways that uh, may make them concerned about their ability to perform well or their AP exams. Uh, occurring in different ways for the students who are taking them. They can't do campus tours. This right. is the peak time of year for that. Uh, we're very, we're doing all of that virtually. It's not the same. Um, they can't um, uh, 
uh, compete in their sports and then have that be taken into consideration. Those students who play spring sports, that's all thrown um, into a strange mix, and even the ones who play fall sports. So everything that we told them was the checklist for them to fulfill is thrown up in the air. And what I would say collectively, and I'm saying this as much to myself as a parent as I am to prospective students nationwide, is everyone's in the exact same boat. Yeah. So yeah. the reality is we're all going to have to look at um, your children's applicant pool with all of this in mind. Yeah. We're all right. going to want them point. on our campuses. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something exactly. that would that's, just think everyone's going through it. That's right. a good thing to hear. Yeah, It's a totally. great note to end on. We wish we had more time. As always, Joan Gable, you're the best. University of Minnesota president joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Some really good words uh, about yeah. uh, giving each other a little bit of grace. I think we can use that in all aspects of our lives. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Andy Purdy is with us. He's Chief Security Officer at Huawei Technologies uh, USA, and he's joining us on the phone from Bethesda, Maryland. Andy, um, nice to have you back. I uh, wish it was under different terms and different uh, environment. Uh, yes. first, first of all, tell us a little bit about you know yourself, your family. I hope everyone's safe, your workers. Tell us a little bit about what this has meant to you guys personally and professionally. Yeah, we certainly uh, a, a lot of precautions and some of our businesses, of course, were shut down, but our primary concern is, is our employees. So there's been a lot of people that the traveling, of course, has stopped, and there's a lot of self-quarantining. Uh, I'm self-quarantined until tomorrow because I flew back from uh, Australia two weeks ago, and uh, all the other trips were canceled. Um, but um, except for some illnesses uh, in the province where Wuhan, the, the original center, uh, started, um, we haven't had infections. Uh, and everyone is doing okay. Um, and we've had very extensive monitoring uh, of employees, and, and that's been lessened uh, somewhat. Um, so that, that's, been our, that's been our primary concern. And, uh, you know, my wife and daughter and I are, are pretty much at home with safe trips to, uh, you know, the grocery store. And uh, so we're, uh, we're hanging in there. Well, and Andy, you know, to your point, I mean, you understand global business so well, given given your experience. I mean, in the short term, obviously, everything is is shut down um, and no one's traveling anywhere, certainly internationally. And it feels like domestically people are traveling uh, even even less. What are the implications for business that is just sort of put on hold when it does come back and and what sort of changes in that sort of midterm stretch i guess well that's a that's a heck of a question it's a big question um, so you're a smart it, guy <laughs> it, it has implications for supply chain and and um in in the short term um our supply chain has been in pretty good shape 90 percent of our facilities are, are back up and running the ones in the wuhan province where Wuhan, Wuhan is uh, or, or not. Um, but the, um, the longer-term impact on, on the global economy um, and the kind of competing factors for some of the greater business cases to use 5G uh, versus the fact that people have a lot of economic issues and so the business case uh, can be a struggle and, you know, each country is, is involved in that struggle themselves. But right now we've got Places in the world where, like the United States, they're emphasis, they, they are projecting that we'll, we'll peak in the next two or three weeks or, or more. And obviously we can be encouraged that, that the China peak appears to have passed, although the problem is not completely gone. 
but we've got problems around the world. So we hope that you know the, the kind of collaboration and information sharing and and the kind of combining of resources and, and assets can can continue to work. So we can uh, we we can make sure we can we can meet the needs and, and they're going to grow. So we've got to identify them and be ready to meet them. Yeah, exactly. When we get on the other side of this, you know, Andy, what clarity can you give us about your the Huawei facilities in China specifically? You mentioned um, those in Wuhan uh, are, are still, I believe you said, not up and operating. I think right. we're trying to figure out because the trajectory of what happened in China maybe gives us some idea of what the trajectory will be uh, over in Europe or here in the United States. What are you hearing? Because you know the stories. It's really sometimes very hard to trust some of the data that's coming out of China uh, when it relates to their economy kind of getting back up and running. Right. Well, I, I'm, our figures are that 90% of our facilities are operational, um, and so we're encouraged by that. Uh, so in the longer term, that, 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 can, that can have an impact. We know how to lengthy conference call with colleagues in several parts of the world, including China today, and then a lengthy call later in the day with a, a colleague who's from Australia who, who works with us in, in, uh, in China. And he says, you know, he's been self-quarantined, but his communications are that um, things are definitely up and running a lot more than, than they were, and at least near Shenzhen, where our headquarters is, uh, things are quite operational, although people are recognizing the social distancing. They're being very careful. We have the precautions of you know, testing your temperature before you go into any building and, the, uh, you know, cleaning all the public surfaces every hour and all the kinds of measures that, that companies and governments are, are, are trying to take. But so it's definitely, there's no question that at least in, in important parts and major parts of China, th- there has been a, a peak and an ebbing, but there, there are still some, uh, some infections that are taking place apparently. You know, Andy, I do wonder about the role of cybersecurity at a time like this, especially when the workforce, the global workforce has been just sort of, you know, thrown to thrown to the hills. You know, Carol and I are doing this broadcast speaking to you from our homes. You know, we have these setups where we're able to do that and we're certainly not alone and working from home. I do wonder as companies have sort of scrambled to keep up with this, how much vulnerability is out there that wasn't before. Well, I think I, I think there definitely is vulnerability that one has to be concerned about, and in fact, and maybe it's counterintuitive that that to the extent that that great companies can come together working with governments to to set up some of the capabilities that are still going to be needed and can still be implemented. For example, the the enhanced monitoring of of temperatures and and people, uh, the the greater coordination of quarantining and making sure that people can still get food and and, and medical care. The remote uh, healthcare service and diagnostics um, really need to be up and running. And then there are, there are treatment issues and, and how you can bring data to bear to uh, to get the analysis and the thermal imaging and and all that is is all very very necessary. And as those systems are up and running, as in fact I had my first tele presence with with my uh, orthopedist today, and, and so she was showing me and it was high speed because it was uh, you know the, the, the landed internet. The, uh, the MRI figures and, and showing me the different slices. And, but that's the kind of thing that because we don't have 5G rolled out, you can't use the mobile devices in most places to be able to do that kind of remote monitoring and, and consultations and, and what have you. So um, the, as we become dependent on those enhanced capabilities, then the needs to make sure you're up and running with your cybersecurity to make sure that your data is protected become all the more important. 
You know, Andy, we've had, we've been lucky enough to have thoughtful conversations with you in the past. A lot of it has talked about the U.S.-China trade war and the impact that that would have potentially on the relationship between the two countries and, you know, specifically supply chains. I do wonder with what we're seeing now with the virus and how global supply chains can really be hurtful at a time, you know, like this and stopping kind of the flow of goods. Do you think it's going to change even more so supply chains, that you'll have more stuff kind of in your backyard and where you're selling? Well, I think the um, creating sustainability and the having your multiple uh, suppliers, your backup, um, we implemented sort of a plan B with a lot of advice from IBM uh, 10 years ago to start making sure that you've got the capability, you have a reserve. And it's clear that based on the insights we and other companies have gotten from this process, that folks are going to have to have more reserves uh, ready to use. And in terms of the pandemic kind of situation, or, you know, we lived through Hurricane Katrina and some some hurricanes, the idea of saying we've got to make sure that we've got the medical care ready, we've got the facilities ready, the food, the masks, and so forth. So our nation needs much greater preparedness of these things so that that we we have them ready. Um, We can't just in terms of the the efficiency and the economics of it, it probably doesn't make sense to do everything at home. Right. Uh, You know, and and so having the right balance where you can get the best technologies, uh, making sure you've got a a backup for supply chain, uh, those kinds of things I think are going to improve business practices and, in fact, uh, government capabilities to to withstand these kinds of situations. All right, we're going to leave it there. Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA, joining us on the phone. Always insightful.